Amen. As we um, prepare to turn to our time of studying God's Word, I want to take just a moment to recognize those among us who are fathers or grandfathers. I don't know if anyone in here is a great-grandfather yet, but I want to wish you all a happy Father's Day. Um, as we celebrate Father's Day today, we want to, to recognize those among us who strive to obey and to exemplify all that the Lord commands that fathers do in Holy Scripture. As fathers, we're called most importantly to imitate our Heavenly Father in our love, in our patience, in our instruction, in our care, in our provision, and in our protection of those who, of whom the Lord has entrusted us. And dear brothers, this is an impossibly high calling. I think you all know this. But by God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit living within us, we must strive to fulfill this role in accordance with the Scriptures to the best of our ability. I'm thankful that I look across this room week after week after week, and I see a room full of men who take these commands seriously. You, you take seriously, and you are devoted to exactly these things that I've just spoken of, teaching the Scriptures to your children, to your grandchildren, in your home, to the best of your ability, both in word and in deed. You love, you care for, provide for, and protect those who are entrusted to you by the Lord. So, brothers, as, as we take just a moment to consider this high calling of fatherhood, let me encourage you to keep striving, keep laboring, Keep working to honor the Lord in this calling. Know, dear friends, that your work will never be complete. Your work as a father will not end until you are called home by the Lord. And even then, you want to strive to live in such a way that the work that you began while you were here on earth is continued because of the legacy that you leave behind. And we must know, we must remember the promise of the Lord. He says to train up your children in the way that they should go, and when they're old, when they're grown, they will not depart from this way. So impart into those entrusted to you the will, the word, and the way of God. This task is of eternal consequence, for if, if we fail to give the gospel and give the word of God to those entrusted to our care, who will do it? We are called by the Lord to lead our homes in a very specific way. And so, brothers, please hear this encouragement and exhortation that you are called by the Lord to carry out these duties with all your strength, with all your might, with all your heart, and with all your mind. And you do that in the grace that God supplies and in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, happy Father's Day. I hope that encourages you and presses you on because as we live in the times that we are in, the, the family, the home is absolutely under attack. Our, our culture wants to deconstruct what Scripture has built, what, what God has designed the home and the family to be, and to, to continue and to remain in what God calls us to be as families and as Christians. We need men to step up, to lead well, and to lead with humility, and ultimately to lead in godliness. So may we strive to honor the Lord in this very, very high calling.
Now, if you have a Bible, open with me to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, and um, we will continue in this study. As Paul began his letter to the Galatians, these first couple chapters, he spent his time setting up a defense of his ministry and his apostolic authority. We spent the last few weeks looking at the first 10 verses of this chapter where Paul recounted the Jerusalem council from Acts chapter 15, and now the scene changes. Uh, Verses 11 through 21 can really be taken as a unit of thought. It's kind of recounting of Paul of one story, and so we're going to take it over the next couple weeks. There's so much here that we can't get through it in, in one Sunday, but we'll take this apart over the next couple weeks and look at the idea of contending for the faith. Ultimately, we could even add add a tag to that, contending for the faith within the church, because what we'll see as we read our text in a moment is this is Paul confronting Peter for the way that Peter was living within the church, among the disciples in Antioch. So today we'll look at verses 11 through 14 specifically, and we'll consider the idea of opposing falsehood. So we're going to consider opposing falsehood this week, and next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the idea of proclaiming the truth. Those are two sides of the same coin of how we contend for the faith while we are among the brethren within the church. Now, it's a little bit challenging, before we read our text, it's a little bit challenging to date the events that Paul records here. I'm of the opinion, and there were many others, I think, that that would actually put these events in Galatians 2, 11 through 21 before what we've studied in verses 1 through 10. So this may have been something that came before Acts chapter 15 and the Jerusalem council. But I say that to tell you that it doesn't matter when this event happened because the truths that Paul records for us, the, the exhortations that we will draw from this, don't matter whether it was a year before, a year after, or 2,000 years after Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem Council. So let's turn our attention to God's Word. Let's read our passage, and then we need to ask the Lord's help through prayer in our time of study. So Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. And this is the Word of the living God. Paul writes, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined with him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been also found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. 
For if I rebuild what I once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you now as we come to sit under the authority of your word. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would move among us in a powerful way to teach us to instruct us, to break us over sin, to humble us, to grant us repentance, to strengthen that which is weak in us, to put into place that which is out of place, and ultimately to show us Christ and to show us where we need to to walk more directly after our great Lord and Savior. Lord, each week when we gather to worship And as we gather to hear the preaching and the teaching of your word, we understand that it is a miraculous work whereby you communicate your truth through the instrument of a man, and you communicate that truth to our hearts, to our souls. And so we ask that that miracle take place again today, that you would open our hearts, that you would open our eyes and our ears to hear and to receive and to apply the truth. Lord, may we be able to put away all distractions, anything that would take our attention off of the truth and the the glory and the importance of your word. May we put those things aside, and may we give our attention, our, our devoted attention, in these next 45 minutes to you and to your truth. Lord, your word is truth, and we ask that you would sanctify us in the truth. Sanctify us not for our sake, not so that we can build an empire or a large church in our community, but sanctify us so that we might glorify you in the way that we live. Lord, for that is the great end of man, to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. So, Lord, by the preaching and teaching of your word, may we be equipped to better glorify you and to more fully enjoy you. Lord, this is a work that you must accomplish, for we are weak, we are frail, but you are strong and you are mighty. So accomplish your work according to your will by the power of your word through the working of your spirit, we ask and we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So by this recounting of Paul's interaction with Peter, Paul urges us to boldly stand against false gospels and unbiblical teaching for the sake of the proclamation of the true gospel. That is the central purpose, the central proposition of this passage, that we must stand against that which is not the true gospel in order that we may rightly proclaim the gospel. Paul gets into that in verse 14. He says, they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. That was Paul's great concern. 
He, he wanted to clarify and, and to tell the Galatians about his apostleship and his authority, not because he wanted power over them and submission from them, but he wanted them to firmly believe and know and understand and live by the truth of the gospel. And that instruction applies to us directly today as well. In God's wisdom, these verses give us specific instruction of how we must stand, how we are to stand against false gospels when they rise up within the church. Scripture promises us that that evil, deceitful people will come in among the church and they will bring heresies and false teaching and false gospels with them. Now, Paul was, or Peter was not a heretic. Peter was in Christ. We, we know that from the truth of Scripture. But either way, in Christ or out of Christ, we have the exact example of how we are to, how we are to stand against falsehood in our day. Now, one application just to mention right from the outset is that we must see the importance of, of our guarding the purity and the truth of the gospel. Paul would later write to Peter and, or to Timothy in 2 Timothy that he must guard the good deposit, that he must guard the treasure which had been entrusted to him. The, the gospel is a deposit from the Lord. It's not a deposit where it comes and sits in our bank account and gains interest and we die and we take that interest. It's a deposit we go out and we use, we spend. It does work through us, but it's also a treasure. It is of greatest importance. It is of greatest value. And if you have something of great importance and of great value, you guard the purity and the truth of that thing. If you have a $100 bill, you're not going to give it to your two-year-old and let them tear it in half. You're not going to give it to a child with an ink pen and let them scribble and mark all over that. You're going to guard that because it is a treasure. It is an important thing. How much more then should we guard the treasure the good deposit of the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is the only thing that has the power to save. So we must guard it. We must use it. We must spend it by proclaiming it to others. And so as we think about this passage, we, we must understand that it is something of great value, something to be guarded, to be, to be for us to go to war even for it. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ has endured through the ages not because of winsome and intelligent and kind men, but because of bold and unwavering commitment to the truth. Now, don't hear that to say that we can't or shouldn't be winsome and intelligent and kind. One of, one of our heroes in the faith, R.C. Sproul, is described just as that, as being winsome and kind and intelligent. But overarching all of those things in Sproul's life and ministry is that he was lion-hearted when it came to the truth of God's word. He took bold and courageous stands upon the truth. So yes, we can be winsome, we can be kind, but those can never overshadow standing boldly and clearly and courageously for and upon the truth. The church that loses a firm grasp on the clear truth of the gospel simply stated will cease to be a church quickly and definitively. If we lose the truth of the gospel, we are no longer a church and it will become evident 
very quickly. So that is why we must, as Jude wrote in that short epistle, we must contend earnestly for the faith, not just any general faith, but for the faith which was once and for all handed down through the saints. We must contend for the faith. And in this portion of Galatians 2, Paul makes clear how we contend for the faith when those who name the name of Christ are being deceived by heresy, by false teaching, by false gospels. So again, as I said earlier, we'll look at the idea of opposing falsehood today and the other side of that coin proclaiming the truth, Lord willing, we will look at next week. So verse 11, we will begin. The the first heading to, to consider here is the motive for opposing falsehood. Paul writes, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, there's a lot here to see um, as, as it pertains to, to um, confronting sin or error in the life and doctrine and ministry of a fellow saint. We could um, even say that we're looking at the motive and the method of Paul's opposing Peter, opposing the falsehood, but we'll get to the method later on in verse 14. So, so we want to consider the motive for, for Paul's opposing Peter's falsehood and Right off the bat, just consider the significance of this event. Um, And there's even some application there. Paul described himself as what? As the least of the apostles. He was the least of the disciples. He was one untimely born. He was one who, before coming to Christ, had opposed and hated the church. Who was Peter? Peter was in Jesus' inner circle. He was really the spokesman of Jesus' disciples when Jesus was here on earth. And um, he even became one of the leaders, one of the pillars of the Jerusalem church after Christ had ascended and returned to glory. Throughout the New Testament, we understand the authority and the weight and the clout that Peter held within the new and emerging church there in Jerusalem. So you got the least of the apostles coming to confront the leader of the apostles. But remember, Paul said this did not phase him. Think back to to verse 6. He said that the Lord shows no partiality. It doesn't matter if these are men of reputation or men of no reputation. The Lord shows no partiality in how he judges, how he uses, and how he empowers men to, to do the ministry of the gospel. But just because the Lord shows no partiality doesn't mean that men don't. And so that's why this is an important event Because the Judaizers, one of the things that they tried to do was to discredit Paul's apostleship. You know, they said, you know, he's not one of the original disciples, so why are you trusting his authority? If we have Peter, the leader of the disciples, believing this, you know, Peter's got to be right. Well, Paul says, I came, I confronted him in the presence of the entire church. Nobody said a word to Paul. Nobody stood up against Paul. Nobody questioned Paul because Paul's authority was rooted in the message that he proclaimed, and it was the message that was given to him directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. So this would have served to undergird Paul's apostolic authority, and surely it would have stabilized the Galatian church because they would have understood, okay, this this apostle Paul guy is the real deal. He is a messenger of God given direct revelation from Jesus Christ about the gospel, about how the gospel and the law work together. 
The way the gospel and law work together, of course, is that you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There are no works of the law. That is what Paul preached. You don't have to be circumcised. You do not have to submit to the law. And so this would have undergirded all of Paul's message because he stood up and proclaimed that this is what is true. And the entire church there in that region said, yes, Paul, you are absolutely right. Peter, obviously, I think even probably repented after this and changed his way. So one implication to take from this confrontation of the least of the apostles versus the the leader of the disciples is the reminder that nobody in the church is above correction. Nobody in the church is above or beyond accountability. Now, should we be careful when we confront sin in each other's lives? Of course. Should we um, even give extra care to the confrontation of potential sin in the life of a church leader? I believe Scripture would say, yes, we should. But we, we have to know that, that nobody is above that accountability. We never sweep sin under the rug. We never dismiss a concern without confronting it. We must confront sin with utmost care and with utmost patience and respect, but we must confront it. Paul did it with Peter, so we must do it with one another. So then looking at our text, Paul begins by saying that when Cephas came up to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. I opposed him to his face. Now we've just talked about how we must be careful in our confrontation, but now we see that we must oppose those who are in sin. This word oppose is a strong word in the Greek. Um, consider its use in 2 Timothy verse, chapter 3, verse 8. Paul wrote there, Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men oppose the truth. That's not a light winking at type of opposition. That is a strong, a firm, and a clear opposition. This word is used also in how we ought to oppose and resist Satan. If you were to read Ephesians 6, 13, James 4, verse 7, or 1 Peter 5, verse 9, you would see the writers of Scripture there say that you must oppose Satan. Again, this is not some light, tender, effeminate opposition. This is a strong and a firm stand against something. That's what this term really is defined to mean. It's to set oneself against something. That's what Paul did. He set himself against Peter's falsehood. He, he stood against Peter because Peter wrongfully applied the law and the gospel together. He said, yes, believe in Christ, but you also must add these works of the law. And this is how we must confront sin in others. It must be done with gentleness. It must be done with patience. It must be done with love. But the issue being confronted, dear friends, must be made clear. It must be made crystal clear. That means that, yes, there is a place for confronting sin by asking diagnostic questions, by seeking to understand the heart of a brother or sister in an action or a situation. But we're foolish, and I would say even sinful, to think that just a diagnostic type of question is the type of confronting sin that Scripture demands from one church member to another. 
Matthew 18 says, go show your brother his fault. He doesn't say, go ask your brother if he thinks what he did was right or wrong. He says, go show him his fault. So when we confront sin, it must be made crystal clear what the issue is. So Paul says then that, that he opposed Peter, and that he opposed Peter to his face. He did not oppose Peter um, secretively or to other people or behind Peter's back. He opposed him to his face in his presence, not with passive aggressiveness, not with deceit, but with great clarity, with, with great boldness. Paul was bold in confronting Peter to his face because Paul was convinced of Peter's need to repent. That's why this comes under the motive of opposing falsehood because the way that Paul did it assures us that Paul was convinced with every fiber of his being that Peter was in sin, that Peter was, was twisting and perverting the gospel, and that Peter needed to repent. And a desire for your brother or your sister's repentance should always drive you to confronting them with great clarity. If that is our great desire, to see a brother or a sister repent of a sin, we're not going to go to them with, with only questions that just kind of hope that they come to the conclusion that we want them to. If you see a child running into the street with an 18-wheeler coming along, what are you going to do? You're going to yank them out of the road, tell them why you yanked them out of the road, and then probably go lock them in the house, lock them in the building. You're going to show them clearly why what they were doing was so dangerous. If you see a child running into the road, you're not going to say, hey, little Johnny, you might want to stop. Is there a reason that you're running into the road? No, you're going to stop them in their tracks. So it must be when we deal with and confront sin in a brother or sister. Do so clearly, not because you're mean, not because you're arrogant, not because you're hateful, but because you desire their repentance. You desire them to be brought back into a right and healthy relationship with the Lord. So for a, a quick application maybe here, a quick um, implication of this, we can understand that if, you don't, if you're not convinced that a brother or sister needs to repent of an issue, then maybe you go to them with some questions to seek more information, to understand what you don't understand about the action or the situation. That, that's the time that you go ask questions. If you're not convinced of the need for repentance. But once that line is drawn, when you know what person A, B, or C did that was sinful, you go with clarity. You go with courage. You go with boldness, with gentleness, with patience, with love, but you speak the truth to that person as clearly as you possibly can. So Paul says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, that is, I believe, the main motive that we see here for Paul's opposition of Peter, because he stood condemned. Now, we have to understand this statement, so we're going to have to think about a Greek word for just a moment to understand what exactly Paul was saying. Peter was not condemned before the Lord. It's a different Greek word when we speak of eternal condemnation. The word here is the word katagnosko. It literally means knowledge against. Kata means against. Gnosko speaks of knowledge. So there was knowledge against Peter. There was direct 
confirmed knowledge of what Peter had done. Peter was condemned not because of circumstantial evidence, but he was condemned by the facts of what he was doing, the known facts of what he was doing. There was direct knowledge against him. So when I think about this, this idea of direct knowledge against somebody and the confrontation of a church leader, my mind immediately draws to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19. There Paul wrote, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except for on the basis of two or three witnesses. So, so how do we merge and marry these two ideas together? Because it almost sounds like it's kind of competing. You've got don't admit the, the accusation, but then Paul says, I went to him, I opposed him because he stood condemned because there was knowledge against him. This word in 1 Peter 5.19 is a similar word, but it's different. So let's understand that word. It's the word categoria. It means that there was a potentially true yet unproven accusation against such an elder. So Paul says to Timothy, if there is a potential accusation, you don't give ear to it unless it is confirmed on the basis of two or three witnesses. But then Paul in Galatians says, when it was confirmed, when there was knowledge against Peter, I went to him. I opposed him directly to his face and even did so in the presence of the entire church. So when, when there is a general and unverified accusation, it must be dismissed according to Scripture. But when, it's, when there's direct knowledge, dear friends, we stand up and we swiftly deal with the issues at hand. If there are confirmed facts of a sin in any brother or sister in Christ, church leader or not, elder or not, uh, apostle in Peter's case or not, not that there are apostles today, but if, if there is direct confirm knowledge, friends, we go and we deal with that sin and we deal with it as directly as possible. We do that for the sake of the purity and the protection of the church and the gospel that the church proclaims. So what was the motive behind Paul's action? It was because Peter's wrongdoing put the church in danger. Calvin wrote that Christian liberty was in danger by what Peter did and the doctrine of the grace of Christ was being overthrown. There was a great danger because the truth and the application of the gospel was under attack in how Peter was acting and his withdrawing from the Gentile Christians. MacArthur wrote of this. He said, before Peter's compromise with the Judaizers could do serious damage in the Antioch church, God used Paul to nip the error in the bud. In so doing, he also provided Paul with perhaps his most convincing proof of apostolic authority. MacArthur continued, God has a purpose even in the worst of circumstances. And what could have been a tragedy, God used for his glory and for the strengthening of his church. So the reason Paul confronted Peter so clearly and so boldly was because the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ, was in danger. The, the truth of the gospel that it was proclaiming was being undercut and undermined. So Paul and Peter's relationship after this, you know, I think even that was stronger. They, they continued to work to the spread of the gospel because Paul properly confronted Peter and because Peter humbly received a rebuke. He received it and he repented. 
So their relationship was strengthened. They were able to continue ministry, and the church at Antioch was also made stronger because it witnessed a proper and a loving interaction between two leaders in the church when sin was involved. So while Satan intended to use these Judaizers and intended to use Peter's actions to divide the church, God meant it for good, and God used it to strengthen and to stabilize the church. That is what the Lord does when we walk in obedience. He strengthens and stabilizes us, our walk with him, and and even our church when we deal with things properly, collectively, corporately as a church, when we do what God commands, he strengthens and stabilizes and confirms us. So then we've seen why or, or the motive behind Paul's opposition of Peter. So now the question is, why? why? Why did Paul so strongly oppose Peter? In verses 12 and 13, we can see the marks of Peter's falsehood. Verse 12, for prior to the coming of certain men from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, these men from James, Peter began to withdraw and to hold himself aloof. He feared the, cir- the party of circumcision. And then the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So as we think about these two verses and the marks of Peter's falsehood, we see what he did and why it was wrong. And then we see, I think, even even maybe more important than that, the resultant responses of others in verse 13. So we'll talk about that in just a moment. But think about what we read. We read Acts 11 earlier, which tells of a time when Peter was being opposed by the Judaizers. Acts 11, verses 2 and 3, it said that those who were circumcised took issue with Peter because he went to the uncircumcised men and he ate with them. That was kind of the backdrop to this. I think that probably happened before this event that now Paul is writing about. And so we understand that Peter had a history with the Judaizers. He, he had, had run-ins with them before. They had opposed him before for going and preaching to and fellowshipping with the Gentiles. So that all kind of undergirded probably why he eventually fell. He eventually slipped. He eventually decided to withdraw and to hold himself aloof because he feared the party of the circumcision. He feared the Jews. So we see that these men showed up, and it's interesting. Verse 12, it says, For prior to the coming of certain men from James. Now, we know James. James was a pillar of the New Testament church. He was saved not long, long after the death of Christ. So were these men really from James? I think probably not. MacArthur believes that they were definitely not from James, but that they, they came and said, Hey, we're coming on the authority of James. It's a different town then Jerusalem, and then they came and they brought their heresy. They brought their false teaching. They brought their synergistic merging of faith and works together and said, this is what James teaches, and we're coming from, from his sending on his authority to tell you that you must do this. But surely they came on their own authority, and they sought to promote their own unbiblical gospel of faith and works. And when these men showed up, Paul tells us that Peter withdrew from the Gentiles, that he began to hold himself aloof, again, for fear of the party of the circumcision. So there are these two marks of Peter's falsehood. 
that he withdrew from the, the Gentiles because he feared men. So he withdrew from the Gentiles and he feared men. That's why he embarked on this journey of falsehood. For Peter to withdraw and to hold himself aloof speaks of the fact that he was timid and he was cowardly. He refused to affirm the beliefs that he had once held because he didn't want to fall under the condemnation of these Jewish leaders. To be aloof speaks of marking something off by boundaries. So, so Peter marked off, he said, you know, I'm not with these Gentiles. Maybe I once was, but I stand against them. Now, he put up a wall and he probably declared openly that he did not stand with them anymore, that this was the message that he held to, that you had to to merge faith and works together. So this is said then that Peter disregarded the message that he had once preached. He preached salvation by faith alone, and he disregarded that. Peter undermined the unity that he once had with those Gentile believers. He was once walking with them, fellowshipping with them, walking in close unity with them, and he disregarded that. And then he withdrew from the fellowship that he had previously enjoyed. Peter was being a dishonest hypocrite. Paul goes on to say that that they were all being hypocrites, and that's surely what Peter was doing. He was deceitfully changing his way of life because certain convictions would draw favor with one group and opposition to another. So Peter was being a hypocrite. He was putting on a mask depending on the audience that he was with. So why was Peter willing to alter his actions, to change his convictions? and to withdraw from the Gentiles, the Gentile Christians. Paul says that it was not because he had new convictions, but it was because he feared these men. He, he began to withdraw and to hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. Now, do you recall what Peter said back in Galatians 1 verse 10? He said, For am I, I now seeking the favor of men or of God? If I'm striving to please men, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Jesus. That's, that's the battle between the approval of men, the fear of men, versus standing for Christ. Paul says, if that's what I'm seeking, I'm not a servant of Christ. That's what Peter was doing. He was seeking the approval of men. He showed effectively a greater concern for the approval of men especially these Jews who are of high standing and high reputation, than was his fear of the Lord. And friends, if that's something you may struggle with, let me just tell you, that is a scary issue. To, to fear men more than you fear Almighty God is a sin that you must strive to crush, because as Paul says, if, if that is ultimately what you give yourself to, the, the desire for the approval of men, you cannot serve Christ. You cannot be a servant of the Lord because you will always be seeking the approval of men. So these were the, the personal marks of Peter's falsehood. This was what Paul saw that Peter was doing that caused him to, to um, oppose and to confront Peter. Now the next thing to see here I think is very important in our day and age uh, many today, when, when faced with the need to confront a brother or sister in the Lord with, with any kind of sin, 
or any kind of wrong doctrine or any kind of wrong living like we see in Peter's case, so many today respond with kind of a live and let live kind of attitude. They essentially say, you know, that person, their sin is, is personal. The, those issues are personal. They're not affecting other people. So we're going to let them live, and, and the Lord will deal with them. If they're, if they're in Christ, the Lord will deal with that sin. That is so common today, and we, we see that all the time. Well, if we look at verse 13, we see the far-reaching and relational effects, the, the interpersonal, the affecting other people effects of Peter's falsehood and Peter's sin. It says that the rest of the Jews, I think that speaks of the Jewish Christians, the rest of the Jews joined with Peter in hypocrisy. And they did so with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So you might be familiar with this term, hypocrisy. Um, it, it spoke in, in Paul's day of actors. The actors would wear a mask, and they would change out that mask in a play depending on the character that they were trying to represent. Hypocrisy in the spiritual realm, hypocrisy within the church, is really no different. A hypocrite changes their behavior based on their audience and the perceived need of the moment to ensure that they keep or earn favor with the audience of the day, the audience of the moment. So in its most basic sense, hypocrisy is lying about who you are and what you believe. You have convictions, you've voiced those convictions, but then because those convictions are not popular, and friends, let's pause there and tell you, the convictions of Scripture are not popular today, and they will lose popularity, if that's even possible, in the days going forward. So, so hear that to understand that this is a warning to us, even if it's not something that you may struggle with today, because the opposition to Scripture is only going to grow and increase. So hypocrisy is lying who you are about who you are and what you believe. And this is what Peter engaged in, this type of lying about his convictions. And based on his leadership position, based on his authority, Peter effectively encouraged others to do the exact same thing. This thing about Barnabas had been Paul's right-hand man. They'd been out on missionary journeys. They had went out proclaiming Christ to these unreached people. Barnabas was, was a faithful brother. He was a mature brother. And his changed behavior highlights the extreme danger of false doctrine. It highlights the extreme danger of hypocritical leaving. For, for if one as grounded as Barnabas, one as mature and godly as Barnabas, could fall prey to this type of hypocritical living, anyone is in danger. And that is the danger of false doctrine and hypocrisy. There's a great danger when men of high reputation act wrongly or act against Scripture because others will follow their example. Again, you, you see that so clearly in our culture, even, even within evangelical circles, that when people of authority... People of reputation, when they act wrongly, others will follow. I mean, there you have this social media influencer deal that goes on where these people who aren't famous for anything but other than being famous can influence young people and, and, and old people too so broadly just because they put videos online, videos that are pointless and meaningless, but then those people gain a foothold in other areas, religion and politics and, and culture, and that's the danger of, of allowing falsehood to, to
to creep into our life or, or our church without opposing it because falsehood will just spread. It spreads like gangrene. It cannot be stopped. A little leaven, as Clark read earlier, and, and Mike looked at a couple weeks ago, a little leaven leavens the entire lump. So we must stand against falsehood. So do we live and let live when it comes to hypocritical living? Absolutely not. And we don't because eternal souls and the purity of the bride of Christ are at stake in our opposing that which is not true. Peter played the part of a hypocrite and he led others to do the same. Paul took the only proper course of action by standing up and opposing Peter to his face. So that leads to the third and final point in this first section, verse 14. We look at the method of Paul's rebuke. The method of Paul's rebuke. He said, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? So today we're only going to talk briefly about this methodology. We'll get into the what of what Paul says next week. Look at the idea of proclaiming the truth as we contend for the faith. But today we just want to consider his method. Um, He says that they were not straightforward about the gospel. The word straightforward is the Greek word orthopodio. joins the word ortho and podio, straight and walking. They were not walking in a straight path with the gospel. They were not walking, MacArthur said, parallel to God's word. They were not walking in a straight spiritual course. They were leading to crooked and perverse things. So, so this is the great driving force of Paul that he wanted to, to contend earnestly for the truth of the gospel. He wanted to be sure that the gospel was straightforward. And so what did he do? How did he rebuke Peter? He rebuked him publicly. He rebuked him to his face. He did so, I think, obviously, as we read this with gentleness and, and with the facts. He recounted to Peter what he did And then he told Peter on the authority of Scripture why what Peter was doing was wrong. The rebuke of Peter was public because the sin of Peter was public and it was hypocritical with deceitful motives. And that's an important distinction. Paul publicly rebuked him because there was deceitfulness ongoing. There was a public sin with deceitful motives and Paul stood up and publicly rebuked that. Now, just, just hear this just for one moment. We'll be done in, in just a minute. But we must be careful that we don't take these, these descriptive accounts of Scripture where Paul's not saying, thus you must always do to rebuke someone publicly. We must take, not take a, a narrative like this and use it as a prescription of how, of how we rebuke sin. There are other accounts in Scripture of how sin must be confronted. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17 through verse 25. And eventually we'll get to Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Those are the prescriptions of how we confront sin. What Paul is doing here is describing what went on. So we don't know all of these details. So we must be careful that we don't confuse descriptive and prescriptive. Scripture is clear about the nature of how we confront sin. Go read Matthew 18 in your spare time 
If you have questions, we confront personal sins privately. Then we bring in witnesses. And then if repentance is still not won, if repentance is still not given by the Lord, then we take it before the church. Then we make it public. So notice that Paul then, he was gentle and he was factual. There are no emotions. There's no nuance. There's no insinuation. He just presents the facts in a gentle, patient, loving, and straightforward manner. That is his method of confronting sin directly to Peter's face, in this case in the presence of all, and he does so again with utmost clarity in a straightforward manner. And so when we confront sin with one another, it must be done just as Scripture prescribes. It must be done in love, must be done in patience, must be done with a spirit of gentleness and humility, must be done with a desire for the truth to be known and the truth to be made clear. As we discussed earlier, it must be to the end that that brother or sister repents of that sin. If we confront one another in a spirit of pride or in an ambiguous way, without following these clear prescriptions of Scripture, we've missed the mark. We must follow Scripture. If we're going to contend earnestly for the faith, we must know what Scripture says about confronting sin. We must not only know it, but we must do it. We must not only do it sometime or most of the time, but we must do it all the time. Paul says, I rebuked him to his face because his sin was open, it was public, it was deceitful, dishonest, and hypocritical. And so I rebuked him to his face. And even with all those bad descriptions, Paul was still gentle and patient and loving. So kind of coming full circle to, to summarize, we see that Paul has given us his example of how he confronted Peter's falsehood. Paul took a bold stand for the truth Because, as we said, the truth of the gospel must be guarded. The truth of the gospel must be defended. Our battlefield for the truth may not always look like Paul's battlefield here. We may battle in the church or or within, you know, think about the Southern Baptist Convention this week, within a a group of churches, a convention of churches. But we may also battle for the truth in the workplace. We must battle for the truth in our homes, with our families. But the weapons of our warfare are always the same. The prescriptions of Scripture always apply. So we must stand firm for Christ because Christ is eternally worth it. As we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 6, we were bought with a price. The price of the precious blood of Christ was poured out when he was hung on the tree at Calvary so that our sins could be paid for, so that we could be justified and forgiven by God, so that we could believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of our sins so we could be forgiven and made right. That message, that gospel is worth defending, and it will be fought against. Again, the evidence is so clear. We must make war against falsehood by rightly and truthfully declaring the truth of the gospel. And next week we will look more at this positive. This is kind of the negative of how we oppose. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the positive side of that coin of how we proclaim the truth as we 
contend for the faith. So with that, um, I'll ask that you please stand with me and uh, we won't have